Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Okay, well, Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing in our series on uh, the book of Proverbs. Today's part nine. We're going to look today at Proverbs chapter four and the theme of guarding your heart for it's the wellspring of life. So turn with me to Proverbs 4, beginning in verse 11. Proverbs 4, 11. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along the straight paths. When you walk, your steps won't be hampered. When you run, you won't stumble. Hold on to instruction. Don't let it go. Guard it well, for it's your life. Don't set your foot upon the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They're robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. My son... Pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them in your heart. For their life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart. For it's the wellspring of life. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips, far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet, and be steadfast in your ways. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. Wisdom is competence with respect to the realities and the complexities of life. Uh, And therefore, as we said in in prior weeks, if you were here, uh, wisdom, it includes morality, yes, of course, but it's more than, than morality. Uh, Because the moral rules don't give you the answers for 80% of life's decisions where several different uh, choices are all perfectly moral. Such as, for example, uh, what job should I take? Uh, The moral rules typically won't help you here. But one job will fit your character and personality and calling, and another one won't. So you need wisdom. As we said last time, wisdom uh, is not having a technique uh, that helps you make right decisions, but rather wisdom is having godly character that enables you to make the right choices uh, where the moral rules don't give you an answer. For example, should I speak up in this situation or should I be silent? The moral rules don't tell you that. You need wisdom. You need God's wisdom. It takes godly character. Okay, how do we develop that? Uh, As we looked at last time in Proverbs chapter 3, then we're going to look today further at chapter 4 on this issue. So on the overhead here, uh, we're going to look at three things here in chapter 4. How this character, this godly character develops, uh, where it comes from, and how your character can be transformed from those aspects that are not godly. So first, how does your character develop in general, which is discussed in verses 11 to 19? As we'll see, and we discussed last time in chapter 3, that living life is, is likened uh, to walking a path. Well, first of all, walking a path, it's, it's, it's mainly walking. You know, sometimes you run, 
Uh, sometimes there's emergencies, uh, but the main way in which you make progress is step-by-step step, daily repeated activities that ingrain godly habit patterns, like, for example, a daily quiet time of Scripture study and prayer, uh, a daily family devotional with your children. Ask yourself, how many, uh, how many of you do that? Ask yourself, how, do, I, do, do I and my family, how, much, how often do we do this? Uh, and, and, over t- and, and, and if you do do these things, then over time, these daily activities, they take you someplace. They develop a godly character, which leads to wisdom on the overhead. Uh, thus, your character is fixed and determined not so much by uh, the occasional dramatic events of your life, but by the daily choices you make that lead you either closer to or further away from Messiah Yeshua. This reminds me of an interview I read years ago of a man uh, in, in jail, spent most of his life in jail. He was telling the story of his life. Uh, he told of when he was a young boy, his father had this stunning gold watch that the father loved. Uh, and how one day he snuck into his father's room and he took the watch out of his father's drawer uh, to play with it. And while he was playing with it, he accidentally dropped it uh, and it cracked. And in fear, the boy put it back in the drawer uh, and said nothing. And when the father discovered it, he got the whole family together and said, who did this? But the boy kept silent because the boy had developed an instinct to cover up the truth. And, and this just confirmed it even more. He developed a habit pattern of not telling the truth. So here, he was not candid. Uh, he stayed silent. He covered up. And years later, uh, on a stormy night, uh, he was driving a car on a dark road. He accidentally ran over a little kid. And in an instant, his instincts kicked in, and he panicked, uh, and he fled the scene. Uh, like, like, a, like a well-ingrained, knee-jerk reaction, uh, he just fled. He left. And when he got home, he realized what he had done, but he was afraid now to turn himself in because now it was a hit and run. Uh, but eventually they found him. And he was put in jail for most of his life. And he said in this interview, what fixed his destiny was not the decision he made on that night on the road. But rather, it was the the little decisions that he'd been making for years and years and years. His character was already set in place. So he simply did on that night what he had already become. It's not the big events. It's the little daily choices you make that set in and fix your character and thus your destiny. And we have an example of it here in verses 11 to 19. Notice at the beginning of a pathway, you're in control. You have choices. Look at verses, uh, Proverbs 4, verse 14 and 15. Don't set your foot on the path of the wicked or, or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Uh, Turn from it and go your way. So the the assumption is in the beginning, you can choose. You can decide to do it or not. Uh, But look what happens to people further down the road, further down that path. Look at Proverbs, next verse, Proverbs 4.16. For they cannot rest until they do evil. Uh, they're, They're robbed of slumber until they make someone fall. They can't sleep until they succeed in doing evil and stumbling someone. That's the language, by the way, 
Psychologists say that's the language of obsession and compulsion and addiction. They're, they're driven by their sinful desires. Uh, they can't even sleep until they've indulged uh, this slavish compulsion to do evil and to bring someone down. They're infuriated when someone gets ahead of them. Uh, someone's doing better than them. Someone's got more money uh, or more acclaim or more power or, or more polish. Uh, and therefore, they need to bring them down. And if there's anyone, any individual or any group that you would love to see humiliated, you would love to see brought down, you might be on the same destructive path. And the overhead. What's this addiction? It's ultimately addiction to self. It's the addiction to self-centeredness. It's comparing yourself to others. Uh, it's needing to bring others down. It's addiction to self-centeredness and self-absorption and your ego. And the more often and the more intensely you go through your day thinking, I'm as good as him. I'm as good as her. I'm as good as you. The more you do this, the more you're on the path to destruction. And the more you're so much a slave to it. Uh, it's almost impossible to get off this path uh, absent supernatural deliverance from the Lord. Once you become enslaved, it's very hard to break it. Now, you might not always consciously uh, be on this path of, of constantly comparing yourself to others. You may not realize it. Uh, and, and resenting others. And pridefully thinking, well, I'm just as good. But the more often you operate uh, you're, you're in, this, in your life, consciously or not, uh, on the basis of, I'm as good as you, uh, the more often you compare yourself to others, the more often you feel, I'm not getting my rights. Others are, are unfairly getting ahead of me. Then, the more self-pitying you are, uh, the more absorbed you are in yourself, uh, the more addicted you are to your own ego, uh, the more self-centered you are. You're living in the flesh, not in the spirit. And therefore, you're heading to death, not life. And this unsmiling concentration on the self which is, in essence, which is the essence of this addiction, it can take many forms. So on the one hand, you may be a very shy person. You know, I don't have this problem. I'm a shy person, right? A person who feels inferior. Uh, that you're not sure of yourself. Uh, you're feeling, that, well, uh, you're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're not, you're not good looking enough. Uh, you walk around with this attitude deep in your heart, but no one knows how self-focused and self-centered you are. But you need to realize that an inferiority complex is actually a form of self-absorption. Because you're focused and on thinking all about yourself all the time. Poor me. The opposite form of this, of course, the more classic form, is the superiority complex. Uh, the brash person. The person who literally says, I'm as good as you, or I'm better than you. The arrogant person. The, the, the prideful person. The rude person. The vain person. But note that a superiority complex or an inferiority complex, they're both equally examples of self-absorption. Because you're always thinking, people are getting ahead of me. You're always noticing it. And eventually, where's the end of this? Deep darkness. Proverbs 4, 19. But the way of the wicked is deep darkness. They don't know what makes them stumble. That's the language of a fool. 
They're, they're stumbling, but because they're in such darkness, they don't even know why they're stumbling. The wicked, they're out of touch with reality. Uh, things are, are going wrong in their life, but, but they don't know why. Wisdom on the opposite is the opposite. Wisdom is being in touch with reality. But the more you need to think of yourself as successful and superior, the more you need to compare yourself to others, the more you need to, to impute uh, bad motives to people in order to justify your own actions or, or your own behavior or, or lower position, then the more out of touch you are with reality and the less you really know what's going on, the less accurate self-view you have and the less accurate view of others you have. And as a result, you are going to make foolish choices and you're going to blow up your life. Now, how do you get to this deep darkness? Uh, how, how do you get in this addiction? There's a path, step by step, your daily choices. For example, you know, every time you experience something good and you're not deeply grateful, but you just take it for granted uh, as if you deserve it, Every time you do this, you're putting a mark on your soul. And you're on your way to the sense of entitlement uh, and self-pity when you don't get it. You're on your way to resentment and feeling like, I'm not getting my rights. Every time you get in a conflict, instead of admitting your part, your part and your role in the problem, uh, your, how you were at fault, or what you did wrong, instead you defend yourself, uh, you rationalize you blame shift on the overhead. Every time you make a decision based on the principle, your life for my interests, rather than my life for your interests, you're on your way down to spiritual destruction. You're on your way down to deep darkness. And you become more and more out of control. That's the addiction to the self. And it's the little things, it's the little choices where your character and your destiny are becoming fixed. Now, if you understand this, it's a huge help in coming to grips with one of the parts of the Bible that, that for, for most modern Western people, uh, is the, they have the most trouble with. And that's the idea of eternal punishment. The Bible says that, 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 that uh, many people will live for all eternity out of the presence of God. Cast out of his presence. Hell. Where the worm never dies. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And many modern western people can't stand this idea. Now most people think it's like this. The minute you die this trap door opens. <laughs> and you fall through. And God appears and he says aha. <laughs> it's too late now. You didn't trust in me. You didn't live for me. So now you're going to suffer. Uh, you're cast into hell. And all the while you're screaming, no, no, no. But God says, too late. But what if you actually read the Bible? And you see how character develops slowly over time. Through the choices you make. And of course, when you die, your soul keeps on going. Your soul is eternal. So all your character trends... Keep on going in the same direction, but now locked in for good or for ill at the time of your death. And the overhead. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The Bible asserts we're all going on forever. Now, there are many good things I wouldn't bother about 
if I was only going to live 80 or 90 years. But which I had better bother about if I'm going to live forever. Maybe my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. But so gradually that the the increase during my lifetime uh, wouldn't even be noticeable. But would be absolute hell in a million years from now. In fact, if the Bible is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for this. It's therefore not a question of God sending people to hell. Rather, in every one of us, there's something growing. It's growing up which will be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. Those who are in hell are there, ultimately, by their own choice. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or, or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. According to this understanding of the human soul, no one spends eternity in hell away from the presence of God except for those who choose it. They choose it, thank you, by all the decisions. They choose it by all the decisions that they make throughout their life, which shapes them ultimately into who they are, into who they become. They bear the chains they forged in life. And by continuing on this trajectory, you become the type of person who prefers that that self-centered destiny instead of living forever in the presence of someone greater than you. Because every day in your life, these little choices uh, during your life uh, on this earth, you're cultivating feelings like, I don't like being around people better than me, people brighter than me, smarter than me, uh, wealthier than me. I don't like it. Uh, I want to see these people brought down. And the more selfish you are, but now projected out to all eternity, what's going to happen to you? C.S. Lewis says uh, on the overhead, It's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we're to some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. So you need to see the the importance of the little daily decisions you make all the time in your life and how important they are and how they affect your soul. You need to think about how you handle conflicts, how you handle disagreements. Why? Because it's shaping your character. And your little daily choices are slowly but surely having a profound effect on who you are. They're shaping your destiny for all eternity. So so what are we going to do about it? How are we going to be able to to watch, how are you going to be able to watch your little daily choices? How how are you going to be able to become a more godly person? A a moral person? A kind and loving person? A forgiving person? 
an unselfish person. It's not that easy to change your character, by the way. You cannot do it just through willpower. Look at the second half of this passage. Look at Proverbs 4, verse 20. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ears to my words. Uh, Now, the words of the sage would be his teaching of the scriptures, of course. Remember, the context here in the book of Proverbs is probably a Jewish boy's school. And the instructor is teaching them the the word of God. But notice, notice what he tells them to do. He doesn't say, just obey my words, although that's clearly part of it. He doesn't say, memorize my words, but he would want them to. Uh, But that's not the primary thing. The primary thing, he says, is to put my words and the word of God on your heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. On the overhead. You can't change your life just by working on your will. The keys to life chains are not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. Now, what is the heart? Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. The heart, the scripture says, is the wellspring of life. Now, think of the image here. What is a spring? Uh, A spring is not a stationary pool. No, rather a spring is an outgoing, outflowing, gushing stream of water. Therefore, things are coming out of your heart. Uh, The heart is the spring. Well, what comes out of your heart? Now, now in in English, we tend to think of the heart as a metaphor for your inner life. Uh, And what comes out of the heart? Feelings, emotions. That's what comes out of the heart. Uh, Because that's what our English language concept of the heart is. Because it's derived from a Greek view of human nature. You know, the Greeks believed uh, that man consisted of this conflicting uh, dualism of body and soul. The soul soul had the reason and the rationality. The body had the passions and the feelings. And therefore, the Greeks believed man was a combination of head uh, and heart. You had your feelings, which were in conflict with your reason, uh, your thinking. And you had to choose between your head and your heart. But that's not the way the Bible looks at the concept of the heart at all. Not at all. Biblically, the heart is a metaphor for your entire life. Your mind, your will, your emotions. Look again at Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for it's the wellspring of life. It doesn't say the heart's the wellspring of your emotions, right? It doesn't say, but it says it's the wellspring of your whole life. The Bible says, out of your heart, what's in your heart determines not only your feelings, but your actions and your thinking. Uh, And also, the way you perceive everything. Everything in your life comes uh, from what first is in your heart. So, So notice the rest of this passage. Once you get your heart right, once you get the truth in your heart, then you can look at what you say. Look at verse 24. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. It affects your speech. Then you can also notice your eyes, you know, the things you see, the things you view. Verse 25, Proverbs 4.25. Let your eyes look straight ahead. You can look at your behavior and your actions. Verses 26 and 27. Look at Proverbs 4.27. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. First, your heart. That everything else flows from and out of your heart. Why? Because in your heart 
is what you believe you most uh, have, in order, you most have to have in order to receive life joyfully. In your heart, you have decided certain things. If I have this, then I receive life joyfully. Your heart is where your greatest loves reside. The things you love the most, the things you hope in the most. There are certain things where you say, if I have that, then I can receive life joyfully. If I have that, then I know I have significance. I have worth. Everyone, from Christian existentialist Kierkegaard to atheist humanist Ernest Becker, everyone recognizes that human beings are looking for a glory. They're looking for a beauty to merge with and into. We say, if that person loved me, if I could achieve that, if I had that, then I'd know I'm somebody. Then I'd know it. Uh, we're looking for a beauty uh, and a glory that can be, we can merge with, that we can participate in. And every human heart has decided on something that's your main love, your main hope. Uh, the main thing that you think, if I had that, then I'd be happy uh, and fulfilled. Now, very importantly... I am not talking about what you say you believe about God. But rather, what does your heart actually look to? What's the most important thing to your heart? What have you decided, if I have that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be secure. Then I know, I'll know I'm somebody. You've made that decision already in your heart. And everything in your life is determined by that. Your thoughts, the way you perceive things, the way you understand things, uh, the way you think, uh, the way you feel, the way you act. Now, what has that got to do with wisdom? Everything. Look at the overhead. Because whatever your heart has decided is its ultimate love, determines all the ways in which you make your choices in life. Whatever is the ultimate object of your heart, uh, the ultimate love of your heart, spins out, a whole way of making choices and decisions in your life. So, for example, if having money is not just a good thing, but, but, but the ultimate thing for you, if it's the ultimate way in which you feel secure, that you feel important, that you feel you're somebody, uh, then, then look at how you can, you're going to now make decisions. You're going to choose jobs uh, and careers that don't particularly fulfill you, uh, that don't fit your, your character and your gifts, but they make money for you. And as a result, you're going to burn out and feel empty. Or you'll make lifestyle decisions where you extend yourself financially in order to maintain your upscale lifestyle, and you'll exploit people in order to keep it up. And you might even do you know, uh, dishonest things in order to, to keep up with the Joneses. And ironically... All of these choices actually ultimately undermine your economic status. They're ultimately the most likely ways to bring you to financial collapse. In other words, if money is the most important thing in your life, you will make choices in life that will lose you the very thing that you want most. Here's another example. Marriage. Romance. What if your attitude is, Unless I am married to Mr. or Mrs. Perfectly Right, this amazing spouse, I will not be able to receive life joyfully. Marrying uh, the the perfect spouse for me is not just a good thing. 
It's the ultimate thing. Unless I have that, I will never be happy. If that's the language of your heart, either you'll be too picky in choosing a mate, way too picky, uh, or this person has to be almost perfect in every way because you're depending upon them to make your whole life right. Or you'll be so desperate to get married that you'll choose someone you shouldn't. And if you do get married, you'll be emotionally dependent all the time on this person and you'll be controlling. In other words, if marriage is the most important thing to you, if it's the wellspring of your heart, all your choices and decisions will ultimately undermine your ever being happily married. If, it's the most, if money is the most important thing, if money is the wellspring of your heart, then all your choices and decisions will actually undermine you being financially secure. Or what if, another example, more than anything else, you build your life around your children, their happiness, uh, their success, their love of you uh, is the main thing in your life. Do you realize what will happen? You're either going to overcorrect them, you're going to overdiscipline them, you're going to uh, try to totally control their life uh, because everything must be just right with your kids, or you're un- you will undercorrect them because you can't stand it when they're mad at you. You're afraid to ever discipline them or to say no to them. All of which just ends up destroying your kid's life and your relationship to them. In other words, if your children are the most important thing in your life, and all, that all of your wisdom of all your life and your basis and your guidelines for making your choices, your decisions, these decisions will actually undermine what you most want. But what if work's the most important thing to you? My career is the most important thing to me. Do you know what you're going to do? You're going to overwork, which means you're going to choose work over your emotional health and over your physical health. Uh, You're going to choose work over relationships. You're going to choose work over family. You're going to choose work over friendships. In other words, you're going to make choices that will actually undermine your ability in the long run to do your work well on the overhead. Here's the point. If anything but Yeshua is your main love of your heart, you will ultimately become a fool. What the book of Proverbs calls a fool. Unless Yeshua is the basis of your identity, unless the love of the Lord is the main thing, will you say, if I have that, then I can receive life joyfully. Unless Yeshua is the wellspring of your heart, you will become a fool on the overhead only if the Lord is more important than money will you actually make wise decisions that will help you financially if the Lord is more important than your children only then will you be in a position where you actually make wise decisions for your children if Yeshua is more important to you than being married only then will you make good choices about whom to marry unless the Lord's the center of your life not just in belief but unless he, his love for you completely captivates your heart, your wisdom will just be foolishness. And the things you want the most, and the way you make your choices in life, will be undermined, will be lost. Unless the Lord is the central basis and passion and priority of your life, you will find as your life goes on, that you become more and more frustrated and more and more angry 
and more and more needy and more and more empty. The thing you want the most, whether it's recognition or love or approval or power or security or personal peace, will more and more actually be taken away from you. And less and less will you get satisfaction from it. So what are we going to do? Because without a a transformation of your heart, you'll just stay angry uh, and paranoid and bitter. Your attitude will be, no one understands me. No one knows what I've been going through. You'll be consumed by self-pity and self-centeredness. You'll lose more and more your humility. And to lose humility is to lose your sanity. You're out of touch with reality. Now, as C.S. Lewis says, what if that trajectory in your life goes on forever? The result, the book of Proverbs says, is deep darkness. You're creating your own hell. So we're boxed in. On the one hand, your little choices determine who you're going to be. But on the other hand, you can't change your choices just by trying harder. 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine uh, debated this very issue with uh, Pelagius. Pelagius claims you could change your behavior uh, and your character just by trying hard, by exercising your will. And Augustine said, absolutely not. He said, the main problem in your life is your heart because your heart is filled with what he called disordered loves. Your loves are out of order. There's nothing wrong with loving having a good career uh, or, and prosperity uh, and children and, and a great spouse. But the temptation is you turn good things into ultimate things. And thus your loves are out of order. And they become inordinate loves. And because of that, because your heart is putting its claws into something as its first love beside Yeshua, you can't change on your own. How are you going to change that which you want most in life? And if if you're honest, you can tell how much you need people's approval. How much you need your parents' approval. How much you need your children's approval. How much you need your your, your peers' approval. Or how much you need power. Or how much you need recognition. How much you need your particular political causes to succeed. You know how deeply your heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. So how are we going to change our heart? And that leads to our third and final point on the overhead. So number one, how our character develops by little steps. Number two, where it comes from. It ultimately comes from your heart. And number three, finally, how can we be transformed? Now, there was nobody more frustrated and freaked out by this problem than Martin Luther. He realized that all the past all this path down to deep darkness of self-centeredness and self-absorption, it was everywhere. He saw it in himself. And as a disciple of Augustine, he realized he had to change his heart in order to be transformed. He had to change not just his outward behavior, but his heart. And he didn't know how. And the overhead, very important. Hear me well here. This is the same problem. This is not unique to Martin Luther. This is the same problem many of us in the Messianic movement are facing. Because we focus on our outward behavior. For example, to be more Torah observant or Jewish, to be more religious. 
So we change our outward dress and ritual observances and traditions. But the real problem is our inner heart. And and it's corruption. And all the outward religion in the world cannot change your heart. The Bible says all humans are curved in upon themselves. We're all by nature self-centered and twisted in upon ourselves. Self-focused. Why? Because we're all... Because we've all chosen certain things, idols of our heart, that we think will give us control, will give us glory, will give us the beauty we're looking for. And so we're bent inward. uh, We're curved in on ourselves. And therefore, we're facing away from other people, and we're facing away ultimately from God himself because we're curved inward. And this realization freaked Luther out. He was a monk, and he went to confession in his monastery every day. And after a while, he was going in for six-hour confessional sessions every day. I mean, how much trouble can a monk get into? (laughs) And it began to drive his confessor crazy. And at one point, his confessor said, Martin, it's as if you call every fart a sin. (laughs) And Martin Luther said, Father Confessor, The big problem of the human race is self-centeredness. We're curved in on ourselves. Where do you think wars come from and extremism and oppression and violence and misery? It all comes from self-centeredness. So I wanted to find the the path of life. I did not want to go down the path to deep darkness. So I became a monk, he says. And now I care for the poor. I help others. But... I've come to realize I don't help the poor for the sake of the poor, if I'm honest. I do it so I can feel noble. I do it so God will bless me. I'm not doing it for the poor. I'm not doing it for God. I'm doing it for myself. And when I come to confess my sins uh, and repent, I realize I'm not doing this for the sake of humility. I like being humble. I like to think of myself as humble. I'm humble. (laughs) I'm noble. I'm not like those proud people. I hate those proud people. I look down on those proud people. I feel noble about being humble. I feel better than others when I'm humble. I'm very proud of my humility. (laughs) So I realized I was being humble, not for God's sake, but for my sake. I'm caring for the poor, not for their sake, but for my sake. I left being lusty, And now I'm chaste and religious, but I'm just as curved in in myself as ever. I'm just as self-centered in my outward morality as I was in my immorality. I'm on the same path. I'm still curved in. I'm just as addicted. Why? Because I can't change my heart. Martin Luther, he knew the Bible inside and out. He was a seminary professor. He says, I know the truth, but I can't get it down into my heart. I can't change my heart. I'm still on the same path that I went into the monastery to avoid. I'm on the wrong way. Well, centuries after the book of Proverbs was written, there was a group of disciples sitting around their rabbi, hoping that this rabbi would help them with wisdom. And the rabbi, Yeshua, said this in John 14, verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. 
And one of the disciples, Thomas, says this in John 14, 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Now, when he says we don't know the way, Thomas was using technical wisdom language. Thomas was saying, look, we've read the book of Proverbs. We're looking for the way of life. But we don't know the way. And how does Yeshua respond? Every other teacher who's ever lived said, I've blazed the way for you. I've shown you the way. I'm pointing out to you the way. Uh, Emulate me and you'll find the way. But Yeshua does not say that, does he? Instead, he says this in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Yeshua doesn't say, I point to the way. No, he says, I am the way. I've done it all for you. I lived the life you should have lived. I died the death you should have died. I don't show you the way. I am the way. The way to life. On the overhead. Do you know why he's the way to life? Because on the cross, when he cries out, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the deep darkness. He experienced the cosmic unraveling of uncreation. Which is what happens when God removes his presence. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And he absorbed it. For you. And for you. And for you. And for you. And for me. When Martin Luther finally realized this, it changed his life. He says this on the overhead. He says, all my life, I thought I must give God a righteousness to placate him. But now I realize God gives me a righteousness as a free gift that I receive by faith because of what Yeshua has done for me in his crucifixion and resurrection. And the minute I understood that, I felt like I was born again and ushered into open gates into paradise. And when he realized, I'm never going to be able to to, uh, clean up my life on my own, but Yeshua lives within me. And he transforms me from the inside out. It's not only, when I realized this, that it not only healed my fears, but healed my heart. My holy brothers and sisters of Chaim, this is the beauty. This is the glory that your heart has been looking for all your life. If you just tell yourself, Be good, do good, don't be self-centered. It doesn't work. You only found out what Luther found out. It doesn't matter if you were immoral and now you get outwardly moral. You'll still be on the same path to darkness. But Yeshua living for you. Yeshua taking hell for you. Yeshua taking the deep darkness. Yeshua saying in Isaiah 53 verse 10, the results of my suffering I'll see And I'll be satisfied. Do you know what that means? You're the result of his suffering. He's saying, I went to hell. I experienced all the eternal agonies of hell. And it's worth it if you and I can now be together. That's the beauty you're looking for. That's the glory you're looking for. You have to take the gospel into your heart. And that's the only thing that will completely change your identity. And only then will you not be a fool. 
The only way to get your heart not to make an idol uh, out of money or relationships or children or marriage or achievement or anything else is you've got to have a greater beauty. The only way to pull your heart off of one beauty is to find a better one on the overhead. You cannot just say to yourself, stop it. You can't just say marriage, children, money, others' approval. These things should not be number one. Uh, Shouldn't be this idol in my life. Just saying that doesn't work. You need the beauty of Yeshua coming into the center of your heart. Only that will melt your heart away from all these other idols. Only this will heal your heart. It will change your heart. And only if money is second and Yeshua is first, will you make wise financial decisions. Only when marriage is second and Yeshua is first, will you make a wise choice on who to marry. And only when Yeshua is first above, above even your spouse and your work and your children, then your heart will be healed and you'll finally be wise. And this fully accumulating and assimilating the gospel into your heart is a process. It takes time. But look at the result. Look at Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter and brighter until the full light of day. There's a place in Jan Martel's book, The Life of Pi, where the narrator, who's a Hindu at the time, is told by Father Martin that Yeshua, the Son of God, died for our sins. And, and this Hindu, he, boy, he couldn't get over it. And he objected most strongly to it. Uh, the overhead, this is what he said. He said, once a dead God, always a dead God. Even resurrected. The Son of God must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The taste of death forever in his mouth. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to mortals? Why make dirty what's beautiful? Why spoil what's perfect? Love. Father Martin said, Love is the reason he went through that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Look at that. Look at the gospel until it changes your heart. And out of it will flow the wellsprings of life. Amen. Let's stand and pray. The music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for this word from your book of Proverbs. These words of wisdom. Lord, help us now to choose the God-honoring path and all the decisions we make every day because those are the decisions that set our character and our destiny in place. Lord, free us from all our obsessions and compulsions and addictions, addictions to sin uh, and carnality uh, and the world uh, and the flesh, which ultimately is addiction to self, an unsmiling concentration on the self. Lord, deliver us from our own ego and pride and and self-centeredness. Lord, build humility into my life and the priority of serving others above myself. Lord, help us to put our neighbor's interest above even our own. 
Help, help me, Lord, to take the lowliest seat at the table, not the seat of honor. Lord, help me to humble myself that you, Yeshua, may lift me up. Yeshua, help us to guard our heart for out of it flows the wellsprings of life. Yeshua, I confess in many ways my heart is disordered. My loves and my priorities, they're, they're out of order. Out of order with your, with your will, out of order with your word. Lord, help me to surrender all to you. To make you, Yeshua, my identity. To put you first in my heart. For out of my heart flows rivers of living water, the wellsprings of life. Lord, for Yeshua, for you are the lover of my soul. You are my passion and my heartache and my longing and my joy. It's to be found in you, Yeshua. For you are my meat and my drink. And the deer pants for water, Lord. My soul pants for you. Lord Yeshua, help me to truly take your gospel into my heart. Take you, Yeshua, into my heart. To die to myself. To live for you. For I pray this in your name. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.